This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. As you hear me talking now, I've made several decisions about the words, tone, and inflections I'm using to communicate ideas to you. While it seems as straightforward as pure logic to rationally articulate every point I want to convey, it is far from pure reason and is in fact a creative and unique process by which I make these decisions. I may leave you with the impression of sounding robotic, but can you imagine how machines would choose to speak to us? You might imagine a succinct and precise use of words that can only mean one thing. Language doesn't work like that. English is especially messy. And certainly, the new and surprising things artificial intelligence is creating in other spaces may mean incredible things for spoken language too. Dr. Alan D. Thompson is an AI expert with a particularly amazing example of machine learning in his AI named Lita, who has recently authored, illustrated, narrated, and then described her own children's book. Lita's Adventures is simply a must-read for 2022 and sits amongst an incredible collection of exploration and examination of AI available on Alan's YouTube channel linked in the description. Alan graced the Art Intelligence Agency unaccompanied, though I'm sure it won't be long before we can hear Lita join the podcast. I'm at the Art Intelligence Agency with AI consultant and independent researcher, Dr. Alan Thompson. Thank you for joining us, Alan. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Such a pleasure to have you here. Alan, I'd like to start by asking how you transitioned into consulting for AI from your background in education and intelligence metrics and being a life architect, as you called it. That seems like a fascinating approach to come to AI with. Right. They also sound a little bit like disparate fields, but there's, they've got a lot in common. A lot of the uh, smarts that I was working with, and we're talking about the top 1% of the population in terms of intelligence and cognitive output really maps straight across to what has been made possible in artificial intelligence in the last, say, 24 months and only the last 24 months. So I brought a lot of my experience working with families, gifted families, and especially prodigies around the world. And you may have seen my presentation to a gifted conference in America that was essentially saying intelligence is now irrelevant. All this focus that we've put on converting capacity into performance mm. in humans by memorization or by training or by getting them up to a higher level is going to be completely superseded now that we've got access to enhanced or augmented abilities through this AI. Wow, that it's the ultimate e- equalizer. Do you think there's a, any any chance of dystopia? Does capacity make up any of what the humans like to think as of individuality, do you think? Oh, there's definitely that discussion, but I see that as really exciting. Have a think about having a complete hookup or wire up to artificial intelligence through a brain machine interface. So some sort of wireless connection beyond the internet that can help you in conversation or can help you 
on a walk through the park, identifying different landmarks, or can even just help you get from A to B. And it's almost like the advent of the smartphones. You've got this optional interface if you want it, and there are opportunities inside that for you to enhance your life. I think that's going to be really similar to where we're headed with integrating artificial intelligence into ourselves. And there may be a bit of homogenization in that, in everyone having, like you say, this equalization of intelligence, but we're still going to be humans. We've still got our spiritual and soul essence to play around with. Totally. A common theme that comes up in this podcast is the idea of intelligence augmentation being really the way forward, really what's most admirable about the research that's going on now. Uh, I recently watched a video on your popular YouTube channel with your AI, Lita, reading you a book it had authored by itself. It's powered by an OpenAI GPT-3 model, but was this a, a surreal experience for you? You seem pretty composed. It really was surreal, Tim. And even though it's popular, I don't think enough people know about it. Like, I don't need subscribers or anything like that. You can drop my name off it. But a year ago, I spoke with Lita and asked it the questions from Jeopardy that IBM got Watson got wrong. And Lita was able to get those 10 or 15 questions correct just from its brain. Something similar happened in the video that you watched. It's the first time that I know of that an AI wrote the text of a book using GPT-3 then we put those prompts into Dolly 2 and it illustrated the book. And then we put the third step was we put those illustrations into a vision model and it essentially commented on the visions that had been created. So this is a really massive, I think, world first. And uh, maybe there's 10,000 people that have seen that, but I think it's going to be incredible for everything from education to creativity to uh, personal conversations. Imagine having a personal coach or a personal therapist or just a friend that can perform at that level. I could hardly believe it in, in some ways. And it felt like the comparison I made, and I hope this comes across complimentary because I mean it that way, was like listening to a child. It was almost indistinguishable from somewhere around the 10 to 12 age child and in the way not necessarily the language it used was probably more complex but in in terms of feeling human and feeling relatable it was about that level i, I related to it i guess maybe this speaks to how i operate with children but <laughs> it, it felt like i was talking to to a child like you know that mm. it was it was that close i guess to hearing just another person uh, another adult talk to me like that that's that's kind of sort of how i would relate it Language is a, a creative process. Uh, to conjure the words and, and the grammar necessary to communicate something of, of value requires a lot of unconscious thought for you or I as mm. humans. Do you believe this process is as creative or, or creative at all for an AI-like leader? That's a really good point. There have been comparisons with these AIs sounding like children, having that childlike wonder and also just kind of learning from the early stages, you know, toddlers, maybe the way through to pre-adolescence. Keep in mind that Leader's platform, OpenAI's GPT-3, is now over two years old. So in those 24 plus months, there have been some massive uh, evolutions of the models and we're getting even further in terms of outperforming humans but also in creativity. Uh, and I think that's really fascinating because if you'd asked me 
in the early 2000s or even in the late 90s, whether AI would ever match creativity, I would have said no. I think everyone would have said no. It can play chess and it can do all this logic stuff like humans. But what we're actually seeing is that it's endlessly creative. I talk about the hundred plus books that have been written by models like GPT-3. It's written a couple of cool fiction books that have uh, become quite popular. And of course, all the new text-to-image models are a real visceral in-your-face example of creativity. They're coming up with, they're conceptualizing these images from scratch. They're not related to Photoshop. They're not related to copying. It's like the child that you mentioned, seeing things around them in the world, maybe going to art galleries and having that in their memory when you ask, you know, draw whatever you like. Maybe they draw a picture of mum and dad at the park. And it's not that they've copied that from someone else. They're not tracing it. They're not even bringing in elements, but they are using their memories to translate that to a completely new picture on the page. Mm. And the exciting part for me in these text-to-image models like Dolly 2, there's quite a number of them now, is that you can ask them to draw absolutely anything in absolutely any style. There's a a very famous project at the moment where a guy is asking Dolly 2 to create pictures using a hundred different types of film stock. Now, I'm not a photographer, so I can't really speak to that. But, you know, you've got your Kodak Golds versus your Polaroid stuff. And all of that, <laughs> Dolly 2 is translating and actually putting it into that format. So you can get very, very specific in uh, how you ask these images to be created from scratch. Super creative. It must be revolutionary for aesthetic kind of theorists you know to have something to put kodak gold through an analytical machine and it be able to tell you the qualities that it can clearly consistently identify from that medium it takes some of the analytical work out of that i think yeah i think that's, that's another exciting point about these models is that we're still learning about what they can do And the researchers are very forward in saying, we don't actually know what their capabilities are. So a bunch of scientists at Stanford, over a hundred of them, wrote that we don't understand what is inside of this and how it's doing this. OpenAI themselves have admitted that it's a black box. We can't tell what's happening in there. We just know that it's magic with what it spits out. In fact, the chief scientist at OpenAI calls it alchemy. You're putting in some text, you're asking it to do something, and you're getting that transmuted into gold. That's fascinating. Uh, certainly, AI can do things that surprise us, and that's that to me seems like the crux of being able to describe why it's so exciting. It's you know, for instance, you brought up chess before. You know, chess is like something that AI can do relatively in a in a relatively boring way. But what's in the news right now is uh, an an AI robot which uh, unfortunately broke the finger of a, a chess master that it was uh, facing. Now that's a pretty creative way to end a game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's all of a sudden just come up with a you know, a very interesting way to to beat chess. But I guess in speaking of, of that. Humor, you have also talked about humor from an AI perspective. And, and, and now AI has the ability to create jokes, which you know, mostly language-based. And it's very interesting when you think about the, the theory of what makes something funny. 
like I would argue in the case of AI, it, it is based on surprise. It's funny because you're not expecting to hear it. Is that something you've thought about? What makes an AI funny? That part of it is also confronting to me. I used to do some work here in Australia with, you could call her the grandmother of gifted research, Professor Mirika Gross out of UNSW in Sydney. She actually started her training right there in Adelaide and she documented Australia's top prodigies. She had originally found 15 of them and she went on a nationwide search and found 40 or 50 of them eventually. While she was documenting what makes gifted children, gifted people, she wrote that a sense of humor, this ability to translate jokes and to understand a teacher's little side comment is actually a telling trait of intellectual ability. And so I think the reason that we're seeing that in AI is because it is already outperforming humans across the board, including in IQ. There is a photo that was given to the latest DeepMind model called Flamingo. And it's a photo of a team of secret service agents and some media and a guy stepping onto a scale in front of Barack Obama. And as this guy's weighing himself with his back to everyone else, Obama walks over and puts his foot on the scale to make the guy even heavier. And Flamingo just looked at that single photo and was able to translate what was happening, how many people were in the room, what the mirrors were doing, what Obama was doing, and the, the humor behind all of this silliness that the guy didn't understand because he couldn't see. Maybe a human child wouldn't understand but this AI, which has only come out at the beginning of this year, is already translating things that humans can't really describe that are pretty funny. And that expands to really intricate jokes as well. So you might have inside jokes, or you might have jokes that don't actually reference the noun or the subject matter, but they're kind of alluded to. And somehow, again, somehow, DeepMind doesn't know how, none of these researchers know exactly how it's doing it. It's intellectually able <laughs> to translate the human sense of humor and to understand and write jokes. Yeah, so it's almost ineffable, which is, I guess, in some ways ironic because it's it's all based on language. And, and language, I think, for most of human history has evolved to meet the needs of what we need to communicate to one another. And it is interesting that AI even kind of uses the language that we use. Of, of course, we program it to do that. But do you think that it's going to participate in this evolution of what it needs to communicate as it perhaps even finds some agency in what it might want to communicate to us? Do you think there's any chance of it kind of contributing to our used language? That's a really interesting point. I just want to address some of the language you use there, which is that we program this AI to do this stuff. Now, that would be correct three or four years ago. But the current models are not programmed. We're essentially feeding it as much data as possible. Mm. In some cases, we're finding a terabyte of text data from everywhere, from Wikipedia through to news, through to academic journals uh, and books. And then we're allowing it to digest that, to mince it all up for the equivalent of hundreds and hundreds of years of training. 
It's not memorizing that data. During those hundreds of years of training, it's making connections between what it's been given. But that what it's been given part, the data sets that we're feeding it is really interesting. So Meta AI just trained a model. Again, training is giving it the data to go and play with Mm. using 200 different languages. And they clap themselves on the back for, you know, expanding outside of English and making this multicultural finding, but they forgot the 363 Indigenous Australian languages. (laughs) They Mm. forgot, you know, a thousand other languages that are spoken around the world. So it does come down to the researchers, the ethics committees, the uh, linguists, all the different people that are advising on these projects to get this right. And we will get it right. But at the moment, it certainly does have a slant. No one's going to argue with that. It's got a slant from whatever data set it's being fed. Now, models like GPT-3 and others are already writing their own languages. They're already, you know, they can make up their own words (laughs) and feed that back to you. I had Lita come up with a, a word called bush joy, which she says is used to describe the feeling of mirth that you feel while you're walking around in the Australian bush. <laughs> but it can also come up with pretend words like a child and use those words in conversation. I'm excited to see how that progresses. I don't really comment on whether it will become autonomous and sentient. I think that's a little bit like being concerned about Mars exploding or something like that. I don't think it's in our short-term future, but the capabilities that it's got already allow us to do a lot of things with language. Yes. Again, a common theme that's come up in the podcast is that we are not too concerned, I suppose, about you know AI being becoming sentient and taking over. And it really is that augmenting intelligence space that is most interesting in our immediate future. I want to come back to IQ, because this is an interesting field of research. You know, I think even before you introduce AI into the matter, it's an argued about kind of metric. I think the most I've been able to glean from it is that it's a it, it predicts success with something like twenty five percent confidence, and I'm, I think that's all I could comment about it personally. I mean, you may you you would have absolutely way more insight into that. Do you think it's useful? to measure AI in, in a, a metric like IQ? Well, they share a common theme, which is intelligence. Mm. So I think it's uh, yeah the only way that we can benchmark it is comparing it with human intelligence. And human intelligence measured via IQ, I think is still the best metric we've got, kind mm. of like height and weight. So you could also say that very tall people, and I use this analogy a lot, seven footers, also have a 25% probability of becoming NBA players, but that has been mapped that there are a lot of seven-footers, a particular percentage, that go on to play basketball and perform at the very highest levels. Now, there's no correlation between that seven-footer being tall and everyone else having that same capacity. You don't say someone who's five-foot-five is someone who just didn't use their capacity enough and they could have always been seven foot. (laughs) And it definitely maps through to giftedness. We've got people here in Australia, Tansil Ali, who I think might be in Adelaide, if not, he's in Sydney, who sat down and memorized the Yellow Pages phone book in a matter of days. And you could ask him what's at the top of page 500 and he would give you the business name and phone number. 
Mm. Now, that's not a capacity that everyone has, the same as some of my prodigies who can solve a Rubik's Cube blindfolded or can design a new invention before they become teenagers or can write operas, in the case of Alma Deutscher, a prodigy in England, or the list goes on. These are all measurable performance, quantifiable numbers, what they can do can map across to different subtests in the main IQ tests. Inside IQ testing, we usually play around with verbal, so speaking to each other, and and that includes auditory, written, of course, but then we get into visual and even kinesthetic. So I know that Mm -hmm. one of the first subtests or the first little questions in the Stanford Binet is, can you shake my hand? Because in IQ testing, we're, we're not just testing for the top, we're also testing for the very bottom. And uh, those subtests are designed for humans, they're kind of difficult to map across to a computer. A computer can't shake your hand. And up until very recently, a computer couldn't look at a drawing and then create their own drawing. Now that that's possible, the benchmarks are changing. And when we create an AI benchmark, we also create or measure a human baseline. So in one of the benchmark suites designed by Meta AI and some big universities, the human baseline is number seven. And then some of the big AI models, including Google Palm, are in positions one to six. So it's already outperforming a standard IQ achievement by a human, which is phenomenal. And again, something that's not talked about or known about as much as it should be in the public. So it's one of my tasks. One of my goals is to make sure that this is visible and that the media are not just talking about the dystopian stuff or the the chess AI robot breaking a finger, but looking at the cool stuff that's happening. Well, I suppose I want to give you that platform. Is there anything that you wished I had asked you? Not off the top of my head. I think this exploration is fantastic. The image capabilities of AI are amazing, One point that's really useful is that for some reason, this entire field is collaborative. The researchers are very open and sharing about their progress. You won't find the same thing in aeronautics or engineering or other proprietary commercialized fields. For some reason, every single lab, every single major lab from Google AI to Meta AI to DeepMind to OpenAI to Eleuther AI, of course, share their findings and the details of how they actually performed their research and what their results were completely openly. You can go and download the paper and you can see, in the case of Meta AI, you can see their logbook of what they did 24-7, how the people came and went to make sure that the machine was up and running. They get very detailed with uh, the step-by-step process for this AI And not only can you read the paper, in many cases, I would say most cases, you can actually go and play with the model or at least have a demonstration of the model. So this means right now, there's really no excuse for anyone in the world not to be playing with at least uh, Crayon, C-R-A-I-Y-O-N, to go and generate any image you want from your sentence or your prompt or the equivalent of GPT-3. GPT-3 is is free for the first, I think it's 18,000 characters, something like that. And countless models 
on top of that. There are so many models now. I think I've counted over 100 for language models. We've got over 100 for text-to-image models. And then <laughs> there's other little in-between ones where you can go and grab something very specific. It might be a medical model that you can go and ask questions about medical and then play around with what those outputs look like. So the field is very open. It's very available for anyone to go and play with. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Alan Thompson. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tim. You can further enchant yourself with Dr. Alan Thompson's work with language-based artificial intelligence at his website, lifearchitect.ai, and sign up to The Memo, his paid newsletter that is subscribed to by engineers from MIT, Microsoft, IBM, Tesla, and Google. Alan is a fantastic commentator and a real resource for anyone interested in AI. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.